In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. I'm Sean Whelan, RTE's London correspondent, but this week in Cardiff. I'm Colm O'Mungine, RTE's deputy foreign editor in Dublin. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London or wherever else they're taking place. This week, talks on the Northern Ireland protocol move up a gear, but mixed signals continue on the prospect of a deal before Christmas and whether or not the UK will trigger Article 16. We'll unravel the mysteries and get the view from the Taoiseach and the leaders of the devolved governments of Scotland and Wales at the British-Irish Council in Cardiff. But first, we ended last week's podcast on a somewhat optimistic note. Mara Shevchevich, the EU's Brexit point man, was sounding quite optimistic, saying there had been a change of tone that he was much encouraged by on the part of the UK government. And then last week... I would like to make our position on these negotiations in Article 16, 100% clear, as he asks. Uh, Whatever messages to the contrary the EU may think they've heard or read, uh, our position has not changed from the one I set out on the 10th of November or indeed in July at the time of the command paper. Sean, you were watching what was going on in the Lords. Tony, you were too. Let's let's just go through where we ended last week with sounds of warmth and emollience, if that's even a word into where it began to harden. What are we to make of it? Well, where do we start? I mean, uh, it's uh, frosty as usual, I guess. It's uh, He came into the House of Lords and announced, just in case anybody thought they had heard or read somewhere that we have softened our tone on these things, no, uh, I haven't changed my, my views since the command paper uh, published way back in July. Uh, so all of these uh, things like Article 16 still on the table, the gun on the table there, and also uh, his requests, demands that uh, something be done about the European Court of Justice, preferably uh, completely excised out of the treaty and that uh, the treaty as a whole be substantially rewritten until it is virtually unrecognisable right. from the protocol uh, that we have all come to know. And that was just the opening uh, statement in his statements to the House. Um, and then he went into quite a lengthy ping-pong with mainly Liberal Democrat and Labour uh, peers about uh, retained legislation and his plan to get that out of the British statute books by an expeditious route, basically saying uh, half this stuff was never scrutinised properly uh, by a democratic parliament, uh, i.e. Westminster, and so it should be treated in the same way uh, going out as it went in onto the statute book. In other words, he's going to try and devise some kind of a a fast-track way of uh, throwing out EU legislation and presumably replacing it with something else. Now, that's the the tricky bit. It's how you get the something else done. Uh, But that is, uh, once again, very much a statement of intent to diverge from EU legislation as fast as possible and with as little scrutiny as possible by the looks of things. Right. Tony, I mean, are we looking at degrees of movement for where the grounds for optimism are? You know, the European Court of Justice was obviously never going to be the the reason 
that Mara Shevchovic would feel encouraged. But there seemed to be some level of movement on the issue of medicines that then might lay the groundwork for movement in other areas as well. What do we know about that and why is Mara Shevchovic finding it so encouraging? Yeah, I mean, the the Commission has always been very keen to to get a quick agreement on medicines because it is uh, an area of vital interest, interest to ordinary people in Northern Ireland. And the EU is kind of making a virtue of the fact that they're going to change their own legislation in order to facilitate the licensing of GB medicines in Northern Ireland, which will be still part of the single market. So they're going to have a, a, a range of exemptions and derogations and, and new bits and pieces of law that will allow the continued flow of medicines from, from GB. That includes generics, but it also includes new and innovative medicines like new cancer drugs that apparently would be kind of caught up in the discrepancy between the UK regulatory system and the Northern Ireland regulatory system. And essentially, if they can get a an agreement in the short term with the UK, first of all, it shows that a deal is possible. And it, it also takes out of the equation an issue which has been a bit of an Achilles heel for for the European Commission and for the EU. Because if, you know, if, if the UK can keep saying, look, you're not going to get your cancer drugs thanks to the protocol, then that obviously casts the protocol in a very bad light. So the EU has been very keen to get this done for its own optics and, and sort of virtue uh, sake, uh, but also that it would create momentum uh, for other agreements uh, to be done in, in fairly short order, namely customs, SPS, agri-food checks, and then Stormont. But the UK has been resisting moving on medicines, partly because it would involve the UK still following some single market rules on medicines. And again, there would be uh, the shadow of the Court of Justice falling on that. But also because the Lord Frost would rather have the whole thing bundled together as one deal if it, if there is going to be a deal. And I suppose if, if, if we're getting back to Article 16, you know, if they're slicing and dicing deals, uh, you know, week on week, then it makes the case for triggering Article 16 a lot dif- more difficult to make because clearly... You know, this would show that the EU is is listening to people in Northern Ireland, addressing the concerns. Here's new legislation to fix medicines. We're looking at other uh, measures to deal with customs formalities and SPS checks. So why would you ruin everything by triggering Article 16? Right. But they, they wouldn't be the first side in this whole Brexit negotiation process to take the stance of nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. So just before we go back to Sean and, and the British-Irish Council in Cardiff, where he was today, did we hear anything out of today's talks between David Frost and Mara Shevchevich in Brussels that would indicate there was any movement? Because on his way in, David Frost said... I wouldn't expect any breakthroughs on anything today, but there are some issues that we're making better progress on than others. Don't expect a breakthrough today. Article 16 is very much on the table. Obviously, a negotiated solution is the preferred route, but it's still there and it's very much a legitimate tool to reach for if we have to reach for it. Yeah, I mean, I think there, you know, there weren't any major expectations of a big breakthrough today, but I think it was seen as a, an important week, um, you know, building on the sort of emollients, uh, as you put it, uh, of last week. 
uh, you know, let's see where the money is. You know, let, let's get into to more substantive engagements on, on the key issues. Up until now, both sides have been working at technical level. Uh, but when it goes up the line to the political level of Lord Frost, it seems to get just get shunted back and doesn't really get anywhere. But I think there's been more engagement in the technical and political nature of it this week. They both both sides give statements after the meeting today. They both emphasise different things. Mara Shevchevich again emphasising the need to get a quick deal on medicines. Lord Frost uh, said some progress there, but but nowhere near close to what the UK want. I think one of the areas where they are making progress is in this idea of limiting the checks and controls on goods. I mean, putting aside agri-food for a moment, which is always a lot more difficult, the EU has said, you know, we can cut customs formalities by 50%. And this week it emerged that they were willing to make this a legal obligation uh, by way of of a kind of a joint decision of the joint committee, which, you know, this is how they, they arranged the grace periods in, in December of last year. That was a joint committee decision. It had legal weight. Why not put these targets in there, cutting it by 50%? Now, the UK is saying, well, you know, what what does what does the fifty percent cut represent? Like, what are you cutting exactly? And they're saying, look, the goods that come into Northern Ireland from Great Britain. There are three ways of looking at the checks. One is you have you have to kind of upload stuff on a database before you send it. So that's one kind of check. Then there's the the potential physical check at the boundary where you where you enter a northern port, and then there's a third check which is. You know when the goods land in a supermarket and are consumed or are bought by a consumer. So what what officials in UK officials were hinting at today was, you know, if you take all of those checks, you, like we need to know if if it's fifty percent that's left, like will that fifty percent of checks that are still there, still dissuade companies in the UK from sending stuff over to Northern Ireland because it's simply too difficult. By contrast, what they're saying is. If we can both agree, uh, as the EU and the UK, you know, how to manage those three stages of the checks in such a way as to make sure that there isn't a kind of a chilling effect that would put companies off from sending stuff to Northern Ireland. And, you know, this is a bit of a departure from the UK command paper, because in that they said there should just be an honesty box. Any goods clearly going to Northern Ireland shouldn't be checked at all. Uh, it should be up to traders to, to do the formalities. And any goods clearly going to the south should be checked. So this, I think, is a slightly more nuanced position by the UK, which indicates to me, at least, that they are getting progress on the, the, the goods part. SPS, agri-food, again, that's proving to be difficult. Uh, medicines, medicines are difficult uh, because the UK still, as I said, don't want to jump uh, the broomstick right yet on, on that. Okay, Sean, if I suppose triggering Article 16 is the threat the UK has on the table in this negotiation, we heard Mara Shevchevich speaking to DCU's Brexit Institute conference. Settling the divorce has always been and remains a precondition for our future relationship. It was on this basis that we negotiated, concluded, and ratified the Trade and Cooperation Agreement on Christmas Eve last year. The two agreements are intrinsically linked. One cannot exist without the other. With the dark hint behind that of a trade war and tariffs might uh, follow from that, seems to have had, if not a direct, then an indirect effect in the UK are possibly exercised through the devolved administrations who don't want to see disruption. That was what you were picking up anyway at the British-Irish Council today. 
very definitely uh, picking that up from the devolved administrations. But before we get to them, and, and uh, it looks like a bit of a revolt of the barons, if you want to go back to the to the days of good King John, um, but uh, we also have to look at the other background that's going on purely in Westminster, where Boris Johnson is really heavily mired in a really serious dispute over sleaze, as it's known over here. Um, he's been bombarded for the last couple of weeks by the opposition. Uh, they've suddenly got new lease of life uh, and are able to attack Boris Johnson in a way that we simply haven't seen before uh, over these uh, issues, uh, problems that have cropped up with, uh, with Tory MPs, a lot of them Brexiters uh, and people who'd be familiar to, to listeners to this podcast. He's also getting it in the neck from the north of England over uh, cancellation of uh, long-promised railway investments there. Uh, and so you've got the Red Wall Tories who won in the election, they don't like him because uh, he's being seen to be um, running away from promises and commitments that he made to spend lots of money in their constituencies. They also don't like him because they're getting tarred with the sleaze brush and they don't like that at all. And also uh, Tories uh, from the shires who have traditionally been able to um, well, moonlight, have jobs on the side, pick up lots of nice extra income uh, as well as their parliamentary work they're now being threatened with losing their uh, secondary incomes which are often very considerable uh, because of this uh, sleaze allegations and we've seen some pretty spectacular examples of double jobbing so they all hate Boris Johnson as well so nice. his party is heavily divided uh, he's got the ongoing supply chain problems he's got COVID problems he's got party problems really the last thing he needs now is uh, to take the old shotgun out point it straight at his own two feet and blow them both off right. uh, by, it, when he doesn't have to do it right now he can put it off into the new year and that seems to be the the suggestion that's coming um, down from Downing Street certainly in the Daily Telegraph which has been the attack dog uh, on this whole article 16 thing they've been champing at the bit up until last week when they suddenly went quiet on this issue and you know when the dog has been barking and yapping and suddenly goes quiet you pay attention and now this week they're suggesting well yeah um, it wouldn't suit Boris Johnson to uh, have a row now uh, maybe go slow maybe do some kind of a half deal with the European Union now and push the really big hard stuff into next year and that might well be uh, a clue as to why there's a softening uh, or apparent softening of the British position. Maybe Lord Frost hasn't got that particular memo yet, or maybe he has, and he still has to keep, uh, excuse me, using his uh, well-established uh, tactics of, of being the nasty cop in this uh, uh, particular situation. But we saw today the emergence of a nice cop, uh, his predecessor in the role of um, point man, for the British government he might not agree with, with that Union. assessment, <laughs> given what, given what um, Nice Cop had to say at the British Irish Council. Well, indeed. So Nice Cop uh, today, uh, today's version of Nice Cop uh, is Michael Gove, uh, who has uh, stepped back into the breach here. Um, fans of, of this podcast will know him of old. Uh, he's been off the, uh, the Brexit pitch for a little while now, but his new role as Minister for Leveling Up and making sure that money gets spent in uh, constituencies in the north of England and indeed Scotland and Wales, uh, he's also the Minister for intergovernmental relations and by intergovernmental they mean dealing with the devolved administrations uh, but also where the devolved administrations meet the government of Ireland and that place is the British Irish Council which is one of the bodies set up by the Good Friday Agreement, the one that uh, we're all trying to 
protect uh, by way of the Northern Ireland Protocol. So this was a very good place uh, to start talking about the latest developments uh, of uh, on Brexit. There were meetings uh, yesterday, Thursday, uh, of a sort of one-to-one uh, nature between the various First Ministers, uh, Taoiseach and uh, Minister Gove, and uh, then more today. Uh, and it's perhaps as a result of that and the kind of uh, talking to that Michael Gove was getting, particularly by the devolved uh, leaders, that he perhaps uh, softened the tone a bit. And perhaps, perhaps we're starting to see signs of a, a divergence, possibly, between uh, himself and uh, Lord Frost over this issue. don't know who would have the, uh, the ear of the Prime Minister necessarily uh, on this, but maybe have a listen to what uh, Michael Gove had to say and uh, have a think about it. I do believe that uh, there is a constructive approach that's being taken by the Commission uh, and Lord Frost has signalled that uh, while of course it's uh, always possible uh, that Article 16 may require to be invoked, we're confident that we'll be able to make progress without it. Tony, what's, what's somewhat interesting about what Michael Gove had to say is he said that David Frost has indicated as opposed to just him opining. So he was intimating there but perhaps David Frost had told him that he would prefer not to use this, which David Frost might not see as helpful in his dealings with the European Union. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think I would agree with what Sean, the way Sean was framing this. I mean, we, we have to see this through the lens of, of Boris Johnson's horrendous domestic difficulties at the moment, but they also have legal difficulties. And, you know, we talked about this last week and getting back to this issue of what Lord Frost said in the House of Lords about getting rid of this retained EU law. I mean, that that is seen as the vehicle for uh, giving the UK legal cover if they do trigger Article 16. And it would mean they'd have to override Section 7A uh, to be wonky about it uh, of the Withdrawal Act, uh, which basically enshrines the protocol in domestic law. And I think, again, Lord Frost was grilled uh, on this by... People like John Kerr, Lord Kerr um, in the House of Lords, the man who famously was the author of Article 50 in the Lisbon Treaty, um, over you know what were his intentions with this bill? Uh, did he intend to overwrite legislation that would that has given domestic law to the uh, or that has enshrined the protocol in domestic law? And he was somewhat equivocal about this, but he did say that. You know, when the time comes, if we trigger Article 16, we will have a a legal position which we will publish at, at you know in due course when the time is right. Now, it 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 looks like this new bill that is going to tackle retained EU law won't be ready by January or February. So that could fit into this timeline that people are looking at, where okay, they. They pause the the threat to trigger Article 16 at this point, so it's not going to happen before Christmas. But then in the new year, it could loom large again. And one of the theories is that we remember that Jeffrey Donaldson, the DUP leader, has said he will pull down the institutions. He'll he'll collapse Stormont if the protocol isn't substantially changed. Um, when it comes round to February, I mean, we're, we're going to be only a few months away from Stormont ending anyway because of the May elections. So that, that again would give him some cover uh, to not follow through on his threat, which, you know, he made very publicly back in September. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are obviously a lot of threads in this whole 
story to, to be followed uh, and, and you know there's no clear picture of which thread is going right. to prevail in the end Okay Sean Sean you were indicating there that Michael Gove was getting somewhat of an earful you felt from Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford to name but two of the heads of the devolved administrations who'd be involved in the British Irish Council uh, let's share that earful with our listeners you caught up with them Yeah well First with uh, Nicola Sturgeon and Mark Drakeford. And remember, I mean, as Tony said, if there is EU uh, counteraction to uh, an Article 16 um, triggering by the British side, uh, places like Scotland, like Wales, which are heavily reliant on manufacturing industries, uh, they would really get uh, hit hard uh, by any uh, kind of tariffs that would be applied. And you know, they're, they're already facing the kind of trade disruptions uh, that the whole of the UK is facing uh, at the moment and the COVID and everything else. Uh, but they really, really don't like this. And this was an opportunity for them to push back. And I think they pushed back hard uh, because they weren't holding back. And certainly Nicola Sturgeon wasn't holding back. When I asked her, was she happy with the way that the British government were conducting uh, these talks on the protocol? <laughs> Not at all a leading question. <laughs> Indeed not. <laughs> are you happy with the way the UK government are conducting the negotiations on the Northern Ireland Protocol? No, I'm not happy with the UK's conduct of these negotiations. I think a lot of what we are seeing now with language threatening the triggering of Article 16, which would bring devastating consequences for businesses in Scotland and other parts of the UK, is unnecessary. And I hope we see a shift in that language. I think we are beginning to see a shift in that language and more of a focus on finding an agreement. I think there are sensible, credible proposals from the EU on the table uh, to resolve the difficulties around the protocol. And therefore, if the UK government has the will to find an agreement, there is the basis for it there. And you know, we should never forget that Article 16, uh, triggering Article 16 would not be some abstract political act. It would have real consequences for people's lives and livelihoods. And therefore, it should not uh, be something that is contemplated, particularly at a time when there is already Brexit disruption and we're also dealing with the COVID pandemic. Michael Gove told us earlier that uh, you are informed by Lord Frost and his team about the negotiations you're kept up to speed with. It. Is that good enough, given the kind of consequences that there would be for Scotland if there's rebalancing or mm -hmm. trade sanctions? or tariffs or any of the other retaliatory measures that the EU could take? Yeah, well, the UK government's uh, description of the Scottish government being kept informed is often different from what we would uh, see as, as genuinely being informed, but I'll put that to to one side. Uh, but we shouldn't be in a position where we're simply being informed. We should be you know, part of the process. There should be genuine consultation. And if something like the triggering of Article 16, with all of the consequences that would flow from that, was going to happen, uh, these consequences would be felt in Scotland, just as they would in England uh, and also in Wales, uh, as well as Northern Ireland. And we should be part of that decision-making process. And that really does demonstrate, again, remember Scotland's in this Brexit position completely against our democratic will and here we find again that these potentially catastrophic decisions are being contemplated with any real input into that process it's completely unacceptable and it's a real democratic deficit now you say there's good proposals on the table from the EU the basis for uh, at least a negotiated settlement but they're all on the practical issues uh, which again you said there seems to be a softening of, of language around but there's no softening of language around the issue of the European Court of Justice sovereignty issues Lord Frost again in the House of Lords yesterday saying my position hasn't changed since July yeah. Well, it should change. I mean, you know, let's not forget the Northern Ireland Protocol was signed by Boris Johnson. It was negotiated by Lord Frost. Um, they lauded it as a great deal at the time. And now we're told uh, that it's the worst deal ever and 
almost led to believe they had nothing to do with it. There are practical issues, uh, and I've heard that from people in Northern Ireland, and I think the EU proposals help to deal with those practical issues. But, you know, I can't speak for people in Northern Ireland or across Ireland. I'm not sure the ECG is an issue for anybody other than David Frost and Boris Johnson. So let's not, if we continue to hear them put forward these issues that are not real, I think, on the ground, then the suspicion will always be that they're looking for reasons not to reach agreement, not that they are trying to find agreement. And therefore, I would say to the UK government, focus on the practical issues, resolve those, because that's what matters to people in Northern Ireland, and don't keep bringing uh, these straw men arguments, uh, because that, I think, makes it less likely that an agreement will be found. Has anybody in Scotland ever mentioned the role of the ECJ to you in your role as First Minister? Uh, I mean, I'm not going to tell you that nobody's ever mentioned the ECJ to me, obviously, in the context of the Brexit discussions. But in terms of it being a real concern over the day -to -day issues, issue. no, I, I don't think people think particularly um, about these matters. And when we were in the European Union, you know, yeah, on particular issues, um, you know, I remember being frustrated on many occasions about European law and did it stop us doing things we wanted to do. But, you know, that's just basically uh, the the... The, the reality and being in the European Union was a much bigger benefit than any of these frustrations from time to time. I know you're under time pressure, so a final question for your First Minister. If you were the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom now, how would you handle this issue? I take the EU proposals uh, made, as far as I can see, in good faith, uh, after listening to people in Northern Ireland. Uh, if there are still issues around the practicalities, then try to get them agreed and do an agreement. What I certainly wouldn't do, and I hope Boris Johnson is not doing, is try to stoke tensions because he believes perhaps that it might play well to a core domestic audience, because frankly there's too much at stake around this. So that was Nicholas Sturgeon. We also spoke to the First Minister of Wales, Mark Drakeford, who was the host of today's meeting uh, and chair of the talks uh, there. Uh, he was uh, very much focused on the idea of concentrating on practical issues. And again, we've talked in this pod over the past couple of weeks about how uh, Lord Frost's position seems to be split between the practical issues of, of the implementation of the protocol in Northern Ireland, all the, the red tape, the paperwork, the costs, etc., and then the more what we call theoretical issues to do with the European Court of Justice and the uh, the writ of EU law in Northern Ireland uh, and the uh, potential for divergence in the future. And he was saying, look, let's get on and do a deal on the practical things now and then wait and see if other things need to be sorted out. So again, looking towards doing a deal. Here's what the First Minister of Wales had to say. First Minister Mark Drakeford, you're saying you've detected a change in the mood music in the past week or 10 days. How significant is that? Well, uh, I've been reflecting on what we heard Michael Gove say in the British Irish Council uh, today. Uh, he was clear that the UK government wants to avoid triggering Article 16. I met with a German ambassador in Cardiff yesterday. He also reported from the European Union side a sense that in the last week the atmosphere of the talks had improved and was focused more now on finding some common ground and a negotiated way through addressing the difficulties with the protocol, which were vividly explained to us at the Council as well, particularly from the Northern Irish perspective. Are you happy with the way you're being informed by Lord Frost on the conduct of these negotiations, or would you be looking for, for something more? Well, the UK government take uh, the view that this is very much for them to deal with, and we are kept informed of discussions. Uh, my view is that there are crucial Welsh interests at stake here. 
uh, our ports are very badly affected by the way that the current agreement has worked out. Uh, we argued in the beginning, and I'd argue again now, that we should be in the room when these discussions are taking place so that we could represent the interests that are at stake for Wales as well. We don't get to do that. The UK Government is in the room without us. Uh, I think the talks would benefit if we were able to be there alongside them. And in terms of the consequences of uh, Article 16 being activated and the countermeasures the EU would probably <laughs> take in response, you'd be affected by it. Should you not be consulted before they take that decision? Well, we are very clear that triggering Article 16 should be avoided. It will simply make a bad situation worse. And if it were to be triggered, then certainly there would be direct watch interests at stake. We export more to the European Union than any other part of the United Kingdom. Manufacturing is a larger part of our economy than any other part of the UK. Any new barriers to trade would have a direct and disproportionately adverse effect on Wales. Have you mapped out those kind of consequences? Are, are you aware of, of what could happen? Do you have any kind of countermeasures that you could try and take to ameliorate any impacts that the EU would take? Or is it just too much of a guessing game at the moment? Well, were the talks to take a turn for the worse, and were we to believe that the triggering of Article 16 were about to happen, we would have to return to all the work we did in the Welsh Government in the days when we believed we might fall out of the European Union without a deal at all. So a great deal of work has been done in the past to look at ways in which we might be able to mitigate that worst of outcomes, but it would be the worst of outcomes, and therefore all efforts should be directed at avoiding it rather than responding to it. Nicholas Sturgeon and Michael Gove talked about the potential for a deal, but it very much seemed to be on the practical issues rather than on the what some would say is the theoretical issues around the European Court of Justice about democracy, representation and lawmaking for the single market. Do you see that as the, as the real sticking point here, or can a deal just be done on the practical things and leave the ECJ aside for another day or never? Well, I thought that the proposals put forward by the European Union, the striking thing about them was their very practical nature. They were directly addressing the issues that traders across the Irish Sea have identified as being so difficult for them. So uh, if I were uh, expressing an opinion, it would be to concentrate on those practical things first. Let's address the day-in, day-out things that are making trade difficult. Put them right. And then if there are broader issues that still need to be resolved, uh, then we could follow on and spend the time looking at them. All right, that was Mark Drakeford, Sean. But before we close out on the people you were interviewing at the British-Irish conference, if you were picking that up from the... if Sorry, if you were picking up a concern on the part of the First Ministers of Scotland and Wales, Micheál Martin was picking that up from them as well. As well, he got kind of indicated of, as getting some encouraging signs from Michael Gove, as evidenced by the clip from Michael Gove we heard earlier. Yeah, I, I think it was his discussions. He had a discussion on Thursday night, a fairly lengthy one with Michael Gove, which uh, was described as being constructive and, and warm and they got the sense, the Irish got the sense coming out of that one, uh, that Michael Gove uh, is in solutions mode and is looking to get a deal negotiated and would rather not go down the route of Article 16. And uh, that seemed to be confirmed by the public statements uh, that uh, came from Mr Gove himself today. Uh, and 
in what one assumes was said around the table formally this morning uh, in the talks there. But and this is what uh, the Taoiseach said to me uh, this evening uh, after uh, we'd heard from the uh, talks in Brussels from uh, Frost and Shevchevich, as well as uh, everything that he'd been hearing at the British Irish Council. Well, the sense I've had over the last two days and indeed in the discussions that I've had with Michael Gove and indeed with others, uh, there's a genuine desire uh, across the board for a negotiated uh, resolution uh, of the protocol issue and certainly the comments from the devolved administrations today were very clear that they don't want any disruption and uh, there is a genuine desire on behalf of the European Union. Uh, the United Kingdom government are saying to us they want to bring this to a negotiated resolution. I think the statement issued by uh, Lord Frost and uh, Vice President Sefcovic do indicate that the talks um, are ongoing uh, and that uh, progress has been made. Uh, so I think we'll take this step by step, uh, but clearly uh, the, the agenda has to be really to bring stability, to develop an enduring solution now to this issue that ultimately will benefit first and foremost uh, the people of Northern Ireland underground in terms of continued access to the European market, whilst having um, access, of course, to the GB market, and then that in turn uh, helping the British-Irish relationship and the European Union-United Kingdom relationship. And is there a sense that the focus of the talks now is moving very definitely onto the practical, on-the-ground issues rather than more, shall we say, abstract things like European Court of Justice? There is a sense, yes, that the, the, the talks at this stage um, are, are on underground issues um, and some of the issues that have been legitimately raised as issues of concern by, by people in Northern Ireland. Uh, I think the European Commission did listen, uh, came back with proposals, are prepared to use those proposals and that package as a basis for further negotiation and that seems to be the basis upon which the talks between the UK government um, and the European Union uh, are proceeding. And uh, But obviously... Uh, there will be some time yet, I think, before a deal will be uh, agreed, and that could involve the totality of issues. But at the end of this week, things are looking a bit better than they were this time last week? Yes, I think that's fair to say. They are looking a bit better uh, than this time last week. Uh, there have been many twists and turns in this uh, story. What I'm taking away from the British-Irish Council sessions last evening and today is a real genuine desire that it makes sense for all of us uh, to avoid disruption to people who are in the front line of business and trade and job creation. Uh, that's the sense I get to avoid that disruption and to get a negotiated resolution of the issues. Tony, the, the Taoiseach has, over the last few weeks, struck a, a far more conciliatory note than his cabinet colleague Simon Coveney. The Irish government is not beyond good cop, bad cop either. And Simon Coveney seems to say, in perhaps more strident terms on occasion, what the European Commission has been saying, whereas Micheál Martin is more of the why can't we just all get along together? There's a there's a degree of that. I mean, Simon Coveney is yeah he's a kind of a more of a sort of a hard talker when it comes to the protocol, and you know he's been in the in the sort of boxing ring on this for for how many years, um. So he knows the issues and he, he knows all the players and he's he's in regular contact with Maro Shevchevich. Um, but obviously the Taoiseach and his department as well are in regular contact with, with the Commission, with Ursula von der Leyen. And don't don't forget, it was the Taoiseach in the Doyle a few weeks ago who said that triggering Article 16 would be a, a reckless and irresponsible move. Uh, and that was really noticed. So when the Taoiseach does strike a harder tone, then it's certainly noticed um, a lot more. But th there, was, there was definitely, both in Dublin and in Brussels, a, a bit of a, a handbrake turn on the rhetoric 
after last Friday, uh, I mean, there, there there had been a lot of speculation about what uh, the EU might do if the UK triggers Article 16. There was this talk of terminating the trade agreement, suspending it, having rebalancing measures depending on what the UK triggered Article 16 for. Um, and last week, the, the Working Party, which is basically the Brexit councillors from all the member states who they meet twice a week in Brussels, they were told that this week they would be given more information uh, about retaliatory measures um, because member states obviously have to be very closely involved in this. They have to sign off on any retaliatory measures. And of course, some member states would be harder hit than others if there is a trade war. The Netherlands, ourselves, obviously, Denmark, um, Belgium, uh, to a lesser extent, France. So Mara Shevchevich has to keep all these people on board, uh, all the national capitals on board at all times. Um, but once there seemed to be that chink of light last Friday, then the message came back, OK, we're not going to start going down the road of retaliation. There was talk, there had been talk of an options paper that Mara Shevchevich would present to member states this week. That talk quietly uh, went away. Uh, and uh, all of the inf emphasis from people I spoke to in Brussels this week was, yeah, we have to engage, engage, engage if, we have, if there's any chance of getting these talks back on a level, play, level footing and uh, get a bit of momentum in there, then we have to do that. We kind of owe it to all sides to do that. Um, so I think Michal Martin has been a fairly accurate weather vane of, of sentiment, uh, both in Brussels and, and in Dublin. All right. OK, well, uh, let's look ahead to the coming week. They're meeting again. They're speaking next Friday, but as as both of you seem to be indicating, Sean, from your reading of uh, the UK media and listening to some of the sounds that have been made at the British-Irish Council today and from your reading of it, Tony, this is going to be a long and grinding process and we may not be seeing any dramatic movement on Article 16 or any retaliatory measures until into the new year. Where does that leave things like how far the grace periods were extended and whether or not another move might be needed to sort of smooth over the frictions that might arise if they were to expire? I mean, I think next week, like again, a very good um, bellwether issue would be medicines. Uh, you could tell from Maro Shevchevich's statement today that he thinks medicines is really an urgent issue and that both sides should grasp the opportunity to solve that. I mean, they think that the EU does have all the legislative changes ready to go. Um, the UK is unhappy that this seems to be uh, an EU-authored solution. Uh, David Frost seems to want some kind of ownership of the medicines issue. I think Mara Shevchevich has said to him, well, give us some ideas. How can we give you joint uh, ownership of this? But again, it is changing EU legislation. So that is a, basically right. an EU thing to do. Um, so I think we'll have to look closely next week to see if they do get any anywhere on medicines. And if they don't, then it's, it's not really a great sign. And there there is another thread to follow, another trail of breadcrumbs that suggests that, you know, the, the, rather than trigger Article 16 and and pull down all the weight of the gods on your on your shoulders, um, the UK could just let things drift and, and have these open-ended grace periods um, and, and just try and establish some facts on the ground right. that, you know, we're not doing the checks, but look, you know, the single market hasn't fallen apart. I, I think that's something that the EU would worry about, perhaps even more than, than a, an Article 16 uh, venture. Sean, how much uh, credit would you give 
Vladimir Putin in provoking the reluctance to trigger Article 16? Well, he's he's always out there, isn't he? And uh, also, uh, you've got uh, Mr. Lukashenko in Belarus. Well, that's what I mean. The, the, the sort of the, 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 the darkened clouds on, on, on Europe's eastern borders. And they are also obviously NATO members as well. The countries affected by that current crisis uh, being provoked. By, yeah, it's, by it's the dynamic with the EU side of it. The dynamic with the EU side of it on Poland is very interesting because Poland has uh, gone to Britain effectively or Britain has gone to them uh, and offered some troops. Uh, I think 10 went out, had a look around, and today they're announcing 140 engineers to go out and presumably build more border fences and put the wire higher uh, on the eastern uh, frontier, uh, not going to other EU countries and not going to Frontex, which is very interesting because the this border guard agency is actually headquartered in Warsaw, so it's not like the Polish government don't know about them, but they have chosen not to do it. The British have also signed uh, an air defence deal uh, with the Poles uh, today uh, as well. So a lot of interesting things happening there on the Eastern Front. Uh, The trade is going, but some of the politicians here are making that connection and are saying, look, our border uh, for keeping immigrants out of Britain is actually the one on uh, the uh, Belarus-Polish border right now. And that's that wider uh, EU border keeps people far away from us um, some are making it across and going into the channel and that does also seem to be a very big problem in British politics um, that people are seeing these people coming across in the rubber boats and saying why can we not do anything about this was this not what Brexit was all about taking control of our borders it seems to be getting worse because well it actually is getting worse uh, but some of them are saying look we need to repair that relationship Tom Tugendhat for example the foreign affairs uh, specialist saying we must repair that relationship with Europe because these are the people who actually do protect uh, our far-flung uh, frontier. They give us that strategic depth and we can't uh, keep fighting with them all the time over everything. We really do need to be getting on uh, with a better relationship with the European Union. So those are kind of interesting straws in the wind as well, I think, in nudging forward uh, the evolution of uh, a British position which might on an optimistic reading of the situation, lead to uh, trying to lance this boil of Northern Ireland in a gentle way rather than a rupture fashion uh, of Article 16 and trade wars and all that, maybe deal with the technical issues and see how it goes after that uh, and hope it kind of dies down and goes away because there's so many other issues that are in play here at the moment uh, that really you don't need to have uh, a trade war coming in on top of it as well. All right, that's it from me, Colm O'Mungoyne, RTE's Deputy Foreign Editor here in Dublin. From me, Sean Whelan, the correspondent in London, but uh, this weekend in Cardiff, Wales. And from me, Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe Editor in Brussels. Thanks for listening.